All right, why don't you just grow up? Have you guys ever heard that phrase before? My mum loved throwing around that phrase, and to my embarrassment, I did deserve it probably 99% of the time. Uh, growing up has a lot of challenges. It requires us to let go of things. Um, as I got older, I realised that gaming on my computer until 2am wasn't really a viable option. KFC couldn't be my staple weekly diet. Uh, using the same towel for months at a time wasn't going to fly when I got married. My sheets needed to be changed, my cars needed to be cleaned, my bills needed to be paid, my meals needed to be cooked, and work needed to get done. Growing up required me to let go of some things and to learn many other things. And spiritual growth is actually rather similar to this. Often spiritual growth is less about growing up and more about growing down. We must grow down in our estimation of ourselves. We must grow down in our selfishness. We must grow down in our love for ourselves while we also at the same time grow up into the love of our Lord Jesus and our love for our neighbor. Growing down, sacrificing, and giving up are the hardest parts of spiritual growth. And what's even harder is all the things that you thought you'd changed and all the things that you thought you've gotten rid of rear their ugly heads again. And that old man and that old woman seem to come back with a vengeance. These old sins that you thought you'd killed. Well, my sermon today is titled The Long-Awaited Reunion. And in Genesis 33, we see a triumphant Jacob, a man who has grown tremendously, a man who has had amazing encounters with God and man and prevailed. We saw that last week. But we also see in Jacob a very human character and a character with very real flaws. And he gives us amazing insights into the nature of spiritual growth, things that we recognize when we read Jacob that are all too true about us. And so let's get into it. I've got three points for you guys. Uh, My first point is the fruit of spiritual growth. My second point is the reality of spiritual growth. And my third point is the destination of spiritual growth. So let's get into it. Genesis 33 from verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servant drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously graciously with me, 
and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Jacob has come through wilderness. He's come through all trials and temptations. He's faced his manipulative father-in-law. He's wrestled with God. He's crossed the Jabbok River. And behold, now Esau is approaching him with 400 men. This long-awaited reunion between these twins who couldn't be more different from each other. It is in this moment that Jacob will learn whether or not his tribute that he offered in three droves, if you remember last week, will succeed. And so he divides his children up and they're going to come after him. His servants will come first, then Leah, and then Rachel, and then last of all, we will see Joseph. And he hopes by doing it like that, if something bad happens to him, he's up the front, right? Esau's beef is with him. If something happens to him, the rest of the crew gets a chance to escape. And he kind of orders them, interestingly, in the, those that he wants to save the most, which uh, I can't imagine uh, my parents having to do that with my brothers, trying to order us up as to who he wants to save the most. That would be pretty brutal. But we're going to find out later that Jacob does love playing favorites occasionally. And he puts Rachel and Joseph last to give them the most chance to escape. And Joseph in particular is last in that line. And it's not quite certain as to why he did that. Perhaps Joseph, because he was the only son at this time of Rachel, his beloved wife, he mattered most to him. Or perhaps Jacob thought that Joseph was the son of the promise. Just like we've seen the promise come through individual sons, perhaps Jacob thought Joseph was going to be the guy. And so Jacob sees Esau, he bows down to the ground seven times. This is the homage that you would pay to a king in this area. Esau wasn't a king, but Jacob was treating him as if his twin brother was a king. This ceremony is a bit foreign to us, but it shows the humility that Jacob has learned. He has grown. We have seen this guy happy to cheat and steal with a bit of arrogance, a bit of confidence, and now humble. He's learned a lot over the last 20 years. And each bow, I imagine, would be painful on the hip that was just recently dislocated. And I imagine to Jacob, he's thinking to himself, ah, this plan has all the hallmarks of a plan that is never going to work. This will never work. This plan won't possibly work. And then something happens that shocks Jacob. He sees Esau. You can imagine the pang of anxiety and fear he feels when Esau breaks out at a run. He's wondering when the knife is going to enter him. And instead, to his surprise, his brother embraces him and kisses him on the cheek falls on his neck, and there is this amazing welcome from a brother that had vowed to kill him. And in his relief and wonder, the brothers weep, both of them. You imagine the feeling that Jacob would have had in that moment, just that fear of death constantly hovering over him, and then all of a sudden, he's been given success from God. And Jacob did well to entrust this situation to the Lord. Proverbs 21.1 the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Along the way, Esau's heart was softened. He set out with murder, vengeance on his mind. But this hostility was turned to compassion. Which, With each gift that came to him, Esau was shocked and dumbfounded by the humility of his brother. This whole time, he's probably built up a character, uh, kind of like 
personality sort of thing about Jacob, of who he thinks Jacob's in while he's out there and when he comes back, what he's going to be like. And every time those gifts come to him, it kind of shatters his preconceived conceptions of what his brother is like. And every single time, he's softened sovereignly by God. He forgets his anger and he starts to remember the brother that shared a womb with him once. He starts to remember the twin who he grew up with and played with. The brother he loved once. And here is a reunion long awaited. By both of them, I'm sure. Perhaps one of them long dreaded. Esau waited for a long time for this revenge. And yet here we are, gathered as a family again. This amazing testimony to God's grace and forgiveness. This amazing testimony to God's ability to reconcile family members that once were at odds. When God's forgiveness and God comes into the picture, we see this amazing picture of how God can change even the most hated of siblings and hated of rivals and hated of family members. If you yourself have a family member that you feel like, well, that's never going to work it out. Well, have they ever marched out with 400 men to kill you? When they get to that point, come talk to me. And so Jacob's wives, they approach, they bow down to the ground in homage. They're not knowing whether or not they're bowing to their executioner. They don't know whether or not he'll change his mind. It must have been tense. Was this just a sick prank? Was Esau just lulling them into a false sense of security so he can make sure that they're all there so he gets all the spoil that he could possibly want? I'm sure that part of them was suspicious of Esau's reaction. He's not like that. That's not the Esau we know. That's not... Esau's normal reaction. We know him as like this brutal, barbaric sort of masculine dude who's happy killing, happy doing stuff. He's happy making vows to kill people. And he wants to know who these people are. Why are there these gifts? And what's amazing is that Jacob is giving back to Esau in portion some of the blessing he had stolen from him. Did you catch that? Some of the blessing that God had promised To Jacob, Jacob is now willingly giving up to the brother that he once stole from. Esau tries to reject this gift, but Jacob urges him all the more to take it. Because Jacob knows ultimately that all his belongings are not his, but come from God on high. And Esau is blown away by this transformation he's witnessing in his brother. His long 20 years of brooding over his brother's faults and shortcomings, justifying his own anger in his own mind and fantasizing about when this day of vengeance will come and he's disarmed. All that anger is taken away from him. He can't bring himself to do it. Jacob is not the same brother that tricked him 20 years ago. Jacob is relieved, he's amazed. I'm sure sure you can imagine his relief that he's feeling that Esau's forgiven him. He says that seeing Esau's face is like seeing the face of God. And what this means is that he's so relieved to see Esau's expression, one he was expecting to be anger and malice and venom, turn to one of friendship, that he likens it to seeing the face of God. It might seem a bit odd to us, but in Hebrew culture, if there was anything excellent, you would call it divine. You would see it as divine. And it wasn't a way of bringing the divine down to us. It was bringing stuff up here, up to the levels of divinity. And so for Jacob, the relief that he felt, I mean, it must have been exhilarating. It must have been an intense emotion that he was feeling at the time. It would have been quite an amazing thing. And when we see the first half of this story, we're inspired by the work that God has done, aren't we? We've seen Jacob transformed. We've seen him 
grow in fruit in his spiritual growth and this great humility that he shows before his brother that he once despised, this uh, generosity that comes from only recognizing that everything you have comes from God, and this reconciliation that can only be produced by the Lord. We've got humility, generosity, reconciliation, amazing fruit, right? Amazing fruit in this man we've been tracking with for quite a while now. It's wonderful to see it in Jacob, and it's just as wonderful when we see it in each other. Those people that we've had long conversations with, those hard rebukes that we've had to have at time and time again, those corrections, those encouragements, those long nights, those long phone calls, sharing scripture with people. It's wonderful when we see God bring fruit in people's lives, isn't it? But often, even the most wise and mature of us still fall into our old ways. And that can be just as devastating as exhilarating when we see fruit. So my second point, the reality of spiritual growth, we're going to see that in the next, the next section from verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who were with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. Well, we see Esau, he wants Jacob to come with him to Mount Seir. He wants Jacob to come back to where he has made his home. And this is hard for Jacob, and he has to think on his feet in that moment. He didn't travel across hundreds of kilometers of desert and wilderness and wrestle God all night only to stop just shy of the promised land and be stuck in Seir. Seir, you must understand, is not in the land of Canaan. Esau had moved out from the promised land. He had found his own land in the land that became known as Edom. And it shows us that Esau has long since given up the idea that he will ever inherit the promised land. He's gone and he's carved out his own space and he wants Jacob to go there. And Jacob could have been stuck there in Seir and potentially Esau could have changed his mind. Esau is probably not known as a guy with that's like level-headed, well in control of himself, he could change his mind. And then Jacob is a victim. Jacob is vulnerable. I mean, imagine what it would have been like. Esau comes out. Esau's great, right? He's excited to see you. But then there are 400 men with him and they were promised bloodshed. They were promised spoil. They were promised victory. And now they have to stand down. They've heard this whole time about this treacherous brother, this brother that we're going to go out and kill. And now their leader, Esau, has changed his mind. They're going to stand down. They're going to obey Esau. But you can imagine their stares, right? You can imagine these men staring at you, armed, equipped for battle. Jacob, well, he lost his nerve. And he went back to his old self. He didn't trust God. In that moment... He should have stood strong. He should have said to Esau, Know my Lord, 
God has called me back to the promised land, and I must go there. Is that what Jacob said? No, he did not say that at all. He starts waffling, and he starts making vague promises that he'll make it to Seir, maybe in some time, I'll I'll go slowly, I might make it back there with him. He makes excuses. I mean, they're true excuses, right? He's got a lot of children, they're frail, he's got a lot of livestock, it's going to take some time to get there. He makes some excuses, but he's avoiding the issue. He has no intention of going to Seir, even though he promises Esau that he does. Very interesting. Esau even offers to leave some men behind to help, but Jacob reassures Esau that he's going to make it there. He'll come. He'll come to, he'll come to Seir. Don't worry. The same flaw we've seen in Jacob this whole time, right? What is going on, man? It's still there. The avoidance of conflict. Always avoiding conflict is Jacob. After all this time, after all the trials he's faced, the same flaw rears its ugly head. It created massive issues in his family, with his wives. We remember, he didn't want to get involved in the conflict with his wives. He basically became a pawn, pimped out by his wives. You remember that ages ago? Yeah, well, this uh, avoidance of conflict has allowed Laban to take advantage of him for all those years. This avoidance of conflict now leads him to lie to his brother who has just forgiven him. He now risks spoiling everything that God has just wrought in this situation. He now risks Esau being like, I knew he didn't change. I knew he was still the same. I knew he was still the same guy that was always there. He was lying to me. Jacob was needlessly putting himself and his family back at risk again. And he goes the opposite way. Esau heads off expecting his brother to come in a month. Who knows how long? His brother never showed His brother went to Succoth, the opposite direction, and camped. The reality of spiritual growth is that our old selves are a lot closer at hand than we realize. And often it's in the good times that they're close at hand. It's when God has accomplished something amazing in our life that we find Right at hand, moments later, our sin is close at hand. We feel like we've taken off our old selves. Our old selves are gone. We've buried them. We've crucified them with Christ. And yet we know where they're buried, don't we? We know where they are. Jacob received a new name. He received a new identity from God. He was now known as Israel, right? He has received a new identity But that old identity is just as close sometimes as the new identity. Spiritual growth is often two steps forward and one step back. It's a lot more treacherous than we think. We want our sanctification, we want our spiritual growth to be seamless and linear. We plot it on a chart, it's exponential. That's what we want, right? But it's a lot more like the stock exchange. It's up and down and all over the place. Listen, I'm not excusing our sin We can't just say, oh, well, spiritual growth is like this, so, okay, that's fine, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. No, that's not, we have to acknowledge this is what's happening, and we have to acknowledge that God's will is for our spiritual growth to be more linear, to be exponential, but due to our hard hearts and our natural rebelliousness, we complicate that journey, don't we? We bring all sorts of complications into the journey that God has for us. For those that are truly in Christ... This reality is painful. It hurts when our old selves come back. 
It pains us to grieve the Holy Spirit, to grieve the God who gave His Son for us, who died and paid a terrible price, and we still fall into that old self. It's humiliating, it's shameful. It leaves us embarrassed. But I can relate to Jacob, right? Often the avoidance of conflict has gotten me into plenty of trouble in my life. Platitudes and flattery can be quite damaging. I've made plenty of empty promises that have damaged my integrity. I've acted in many ways like Jacob. But pay close attention. Don't get comfortable with the reality of spiritual growth. Don't get comfortable with it. Don't throw your hands up and say, well, I'm sinful anyway, so why bother? Why bother? I keep doing the same things again and again. Why do I bother fighting? Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever gotten to that situation? Well, you may fail like Jacob. You may find Jacob to be one of the most relatable characters you've read so far in the Bible. But you have great hope. You have great hope because you will make it home in Christ. While our spiritual journeys are different, all of us who truly belong to Christ, we all have the same destination. Leads me to my third point, the destination of spiritual growth. Verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Well, Jacob's made it back. He's had a brief sojourning. I'm not sure how long it was, but maybe it was quite a while. And now he's in the promised land and he's in the city of Shechem, which the text makes sure to tell us it's in the land of Canaan. The city was at a crossroads of trade. It was a perfect place for Jacob to set up and sell his wares, to sell all the things that he's been waiting to sell for a while. He decides to buy some land. You know, if he buys some land, he carves out his own space. He's going to avoid friction with the people that live there. He doesn't have to rely on them. He's got his own space. That's what he's thinking, at least. He wants this sense of legitimacy as a newcomer coming to the land. And here, the family intends to stay long-term. Jacob sets up a altar to God, and he calls it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And up until this point, God has always been referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the fear of Isaac, the God of Bethel. But now for the first time, we see the God of Israel. He's not just the God of Jacob's forefathers, he's the God of Jacob. There's a sense of ownership. Christians who grow up in Christian households know well that transition you have to make from when it's your father's and your mother's God to when it's your God. When you own God for yourself and He belongs to you and you belong to Him. And for Jacob, he's immensely thankful to God to have arrived safely home. However, the journey back home was not supposed to be Shechem. It was supposed to be Bethel. It was the place where Jacob had first met God. He vowed to return to that place. It was a place that God was calling him to. He even tells his wives in 
chapter 31, verse 13, about God speaking to him. He says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Where? Bethel. It's where you're supposed to be, Jacob. You're supposed to be with that pillar that you set up. Jacob must have had some idea that that's where he was supposed to be, but he doesn't stay there. He goes to Shechem. He decides to tie himself and his family to the people here at Shechem. He does it all in his own strength, like Lot, right? Lot, uh, Lot did it before. He didn't base his decision on what God's will was. He based his decision on what was easy, what was going to go well for him, what was going to end up providing him with a lot more wealth. He's come safely home to the promised land, but he's not quite where he needs to be. He's in Shechem. But the safest place we can ever be is in the will of God. Where God calls us and doing what God calls us to do. Shechem's the easy spot. Bethel was a little harder. And this is important because the name of the city Bethel is house of God. That's what it means in Hebrew. It's the metaphorical place where God resides. That's why Jacob built a pillar and called it the house of God. This was in his mind where God was. And throughout the Bible, the promised land has always been the symbol of our true home, the place where God resides and we will be his people, the place where God is. Psalm 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Like Jacob, I don't even have to know your story to know that you will face many trials and tribulations. I know you will face many sufferings and tribulations and troubles, and you may get distracted by the Shechems. You may get distracted by the Sodoms. You may get distracted by the places that you feel like you ought to be, but our destination is all the same. We want to be where God is. God has promised to take us home to Him. And it wasn't until the cross that we could see how far God would go to bring us safely home. It wasn't until the cross that we could see how God would even make it possible for sinful people like us to dwell in the courts of the Most High. There's an amazing passage in John 14. You guys may immediately have thought of it. John 14, 1-3. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus prepared a place for us in Bethel, the house of God, the house of his Father the place where the Father is. And he went to prepare it. And that house was built on every drop of blood that fell from him. That house was built on nails that pierced his hands. That house was built on a crown of thorns and gasping breath until he breathed his last. He prepared that place through his death. And through that death, won for himself a people to be with him in his dwelling place. And through his resurrection, he made a new people and gave them new hopes and new desires. 
In the great climax of fallen history is that moment when God rights all the wrongs and closes that first chapter of humanity before the truly great story begins. The story we are all waiting to start. And so whatever you are going through, whatever trials you face, for those that are in Christ Jesus, there is a place for you. There are many rooms in the Father's house, as many as there are Christians. There is a home for you in the promised land. And while our spiritual growth may look like Jacob's at times, be unstable and shaky and all over the place, those in Jesus, remember this, arrive safely to the same destination. We arrive safely to the great heavenly Bethel. So let's cling to our Father with all our hope and strength and might, knowing that He will get us safely there. Let's pray. Father, how amazing it is when brothers dwell secure, when there is unity amongst the brethren, and that unity comes through our shared hope in your Son, Jesus. And Father, we confess so readily that our sins are often like Jacob's, where you have done amazing work in our lives, you have given us amazing experiences, you have broken through our hard hearts, and yet often, Lord, we are just like Jacob, and our old sins just lie so close at hand. And Father, we know it is not your will for us. We know that we are washed clean, that we are without blemish, and you call us to live in the righteousness won by Christ's blood on the cross. And so, Father, would we wake up once again and learn from the mistakes of our, this great patriarch, a man of great faith who still falls into sin, and Father, in many ways we still do. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you bring a conviction in our hearts that we will murder that old self, that we will put him in the grave, we will put her in the grave, and that they will be at the depths of the sea and they will be remembered no more. And we thank you, Lord, that ultimately you have done that, and that our destination will all be the same, whether our walk is uh, a walk that is good or a walk that is evil. Lord, in many ways, by your Holy Spirit and by your work of sanctification, you will bring us all safely home. Father, we thank you that you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.